You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth And we will praise Jesus' name We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it Although it don't bring much fame Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it But God's word will always stand true Tried in the fire, still Hello, friends and faithful listeners. It's time for the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King, and I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we study the Bible from its original languages so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news in light of scriptures, and we also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Friday, June the 16th, special edition number 86, Q&A number 8 with Brother Paul Snow. In our last study, we began our study on the Gospel of John. There's so much packed within the first verse that was all we was able to cover, but we had fun trying. We dug into word meanings, a few cultural items were thrown in, and many cross-references were brought in as well. John gives us a powerful picture of who Jesus Christ is within this book. We focus on the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the identity of Christ. If you care for the Bible at all, you will love this study today. In today's episode, we do our eighth Q&A. As always, we have received some great questions, even if some of them are a little challenging. We were asked about the abomination of desolation, tattoos, loving our neighbor as ourselves, and cremation, just to name a few, but there are more. We appreciate all the questions that our listeners send in, so please keep them coming. We pray that these episodes are a blessing to you and that they truly answer some of the things that has had you perplexed. Today's show will be a delight. Now for the lesson and the teaching of God's Word, I'll turn it to the host of this podcast, Brother Donnie King. We're certainly thankful that you're tuning in with us today. It's really, really going to be a good study today. It's exciting for me, and I have several reasons why. Well, what are you so excited about? Well, for one, this is our eighth Q&A, and you know how much I enjoy these. Yeah, well, I think everyone knows you has figured that out. What else are you so excited about? Well, this is my first time recording in Oklahoma since moving here. Just in case the audience hadn't heard, why don't you tell them why you're in Oklahoma? Well, we moved out here recently to Pastor Blue Holiness Church, which is just outside of McAllister, Oklahoma. This is the same church that Brother Paul Snow pastored for well over 16 years, isn't it? Yes, it is. And that's exactly why I'm so excited for that reason also, because Brother Paul's connected with my excitement. Oh, yeah? How so? Because today we're joined by none other than Brother Paul Snow himself. Welcome to the podcast, Brother Paul. Thank you. It's an honor for me to be here. We're thrilled that you're here, and to top it all off, my dad's in the studio with us today as well, and for that, I'm thrilled. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be here, but I don't think I'm going to be able to come out here twice a week to record these episodes anymore. Yeah, well, we'll work something out, but for right now, let's just savor the moment. Now, Brother Paul's not really a stranger to the podcast. He's been on it once before. As a matter of fact, I believe it was about a year ago, Brother Paul was on the podcast with us, and he says he's a faithful listener, too. (laughs) So I believe that he is. He's a good friend of ours, and we've really grown close over the last couple of years that we've known each other. Brother Paul, why don't you take a few moments and introduce yourself to the audience, my brother? 
Well, it's a privilege to be on here today, Brother Donnie, Brother Donald. Thank you for having me. I do count myself as a uh, close friend of you and your family, and I appreciate what God has done in this transition here at Blue Holiness Church. I feel the Lord is in it and looking for a wonderful future for the church here in many, many years and hopefully a lifetime of friendship. My family and I greatly appreciate uh, Brother Donnie and his family. Well, we're certainly thankful for that friendship, and we've benefited from it as much as you have, I figure, <laughs> and maybe even more in a lot of ways. I appreciate the the friendship, the sincerity, and the honesty of all the things that we're able to talk about and discuss on a day-to-day basis, and to be able to have you here is just thrilling to me. I do want to make a couple of announcements. One, last Friday's episode, June the 9th, we were dealing with the subject of what should biblical leadership look like. And in that, I made the statement, I'm not a pastor, so I'm glad that I can say this. And I made several statements. At the time it came out, I was a pastor, but at the time of the recording, I was not a pastor. It happened fairly quickly. We pre-recorded that about two and a half, three weeks ago. And then within that time frame, we were voted in here at Blue. So I wanted to let anyone know who knows that I am here and been here for a couple of weeks, what went on with that. It was true at the moment. It just wasn't so true when it came out, even though it came out after the fact. Now, the other thing that I want to clarify, on last Monday, it was announced that Brother Chris Lee would be on with us today. Because of scheduling complications, we could not have him on. And so I thought, who better to have than Brother Paul Snow? So we arranged it this way, and we're just excited that he's on here with us today. Well, that's wonderful, brothers. Now, we're ready to get started with the questions, and we have some pretty intriguing things today. The first question was sent in from a listener in Texas. Question number one, why do we hear so much more about Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, but very little about Joshua and the parting of the Jordan River? Well, for one thing, when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and they arrived at the Red Sea, this was the first time humanity had ever witnessed waters parting. God parted the waters in the very beginning when he separated the firmaments back in Genesis, but man was not there to see it. He was not a witness to it. So the first time man had ever seen the waters part was there in the book of Exodus when all of the Israelites came down to the water and they saw the waters part with their very own eyes. But then the Egyptians saw the waters parted and they tried to cross over as well. Now, they didn't live to tell anybody, but the Israelites did. So some people look at that as more important than what happened at the time of Joshua. And some people, even scholars, say that the parting of the waters in Joshua was a small-scale miracle, while it was a major miracle of what happened in the book of Exodus. But that's wrong. Whether the water was three feet wide and one foot deep, or three miles wide and a hundred feet deep, for God to part the waters is amazing, and it's a miracle either way. The big part that many people tend to overlook in these settings is that they crossed over on dry ground. If there's a scientist who could explain how that happened, I'd love to hear it. To give my final answer, I'd say that most people just default to the law of first mention in the Bible, and they talk about the one that they remember happening first. There's a lot of symbolism that goes along with the crossing of the Red Sea, coming out of Egypt, and all of that figures in as well. 
coming out of Egypt is typifying the salvation moment of coming out of sin. Crossing through the waters is a picture of baptism. All of these things are types and shadows, but you can also use the same things for Joshua as well. So I would say that that's in a lot of people's minds when they look at it. You read it first in Exodus. It seems to be a little bigger than what happened in Joshua, and that could be what's going on there. First of all, I appreciate this question. I don't know that I've heard about Moses and the parting of the Red Sea more than Joshua and the parting of the Jordan River, but obviously the listener has, so I'll try to give some reasons why or how this might be the case. One thing I found was that the parting and crossing of the Red Sea was in Scripture more frequent. Joshua even points them back to what God did to the Red Sea, and that's in Joshua chapter 4 in verse number 23. Also, Nehemiah writes about it in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. The psalmist as well speaks of the parting of the Red Sea. Psalm 106 and verse 9 says, He rebuked the Red Sea also, and he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. Verse 11 of Psalm 106 says, And the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Also, in Psalm 136, verse 13 and 15, if you want to look those passages up. And then in Acts chapter number 7, verse number 36. And then, again, in Hebrews chapter number 11, verse number 29, I'll read this verse. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, when the Egyptians, as saying to do, were drowned. So, possibly the fact that the Red Sea seems to be pointed to more frequent, and then also the story of Pharaoh and his army being drowned when Moses stretched his rod back over the dry land, as Brother Donnie pointed out so well, or as the Bible says, over the sea. Yet, I do believe that Joshua and the parting of the Jordan River is an amazing and significant miracle to us as believers. It is very clear in the Word of God that God gave us both of them to be significant in our lives. Okay, brothers, this next question comes from the great state of Oklahoma. Question number two, Mark chapter 13, verse 14, reference Daniel 12 and 11 where he is prophesying concerning the abomination of desolation. What exactly is this abomination? Is this referring to homosexuality? So what is this abomination of desolation? I would like to read Matthew chapter number 24 and verse number 15. Of course, you can reference those verses that were mentioned as well, and I'll allude to them. Matthew 24 and 15 says, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Mark said in Mark 13 and 14, standing where it ought not. Matthew says, stand in the holy place. Daniel says, it will be set up. Jesus is answering two questions in Matthew chapter number 24. First, when Jerusalem was to be destroyed, when will it be destroyed? Second, what was to be the sign of his coming and of the end of the world? We know that around 70 AD, Titus brought great destruction upon Jerusalem, but Christ has yet to return, but he will. I want to remind our listeners, he will come back. But I believe the abomination of desolation is speaking of more than just a happening in history. 
This is the tenth sign to be given by Christ. And there are actually three places in Daniel that speak of this abomination. Daniel chapter number 9, beginning at verse number 24 down through 27. Chapter number 11, verse number 31. And chapter number 12 and verse number 11 that the question references. Desolations are determined, Daniel chapter number 9 says. The overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. Chapter number 11, verse number 31 says, And they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. So Christ tells us a few things about this sign. First of all, it will be seen. Second thing is it was prophesied by Daniel. The third thing, it will stand in the holy place, will take place and be seen in the temple. This can be figurative to represent religion or religions or a literal happening again in the temple. And what I mean by again is the king of Syria, Antiochus, in 170 BC, as well as Titus in 70 AD, stood within the temple. Sacrifices were made, abominations happened during those times. Also, whoso readeth, let him understand. Daniel said, Know therefore and understand. Understand what? Know what? What do we need to know? First of all, we need to understand this abomination that will be set up will launch the great tribulation. That much is clear. I lean toward this abomination being a person or at least the image of a person who will be set in place and will be a destroyer and cause so much havoc upon the entire world. This person could possibly be a homosexual, but I don't believe it is referring to homosexuality alone. Okay, the question is, what is this abomination mentioned in Mark 13 and 14 that is being spoken of from Daniel 12 and 11? And the secondary question is, is this referring to homosexuality? I'm going to answer the second part first. Probably not, but I do see a possibility. In this context, this phrase could refer to some worldwide or regional catastrophe. Some people believe it to be isolated to one area. Some people believe it to be a worldwide thing. I lean with the latter. The abomination of desolation appears only in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and it describes a terrible event that was detestable to God. Let me read you Mark 13 and 14, and then I'll read you a couple of passages quickly. But when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. Daniel 9 and 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Daniel 11 and 31, and arms shall stand on his part and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. Daniel 12 and 11, and from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Now, the references in Daniel might be connected to the erecting of a pagan altar by Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, and it could be when he sacrificed a pig upon the altar. It could have happened in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. 
The key phrase is that this abomination will stand where it ought not, which is Brother Paul pointed out in Matthew 24, 15, interprets as in the holy place. Now we've got to ask a question. What is the holy place? Most likely, it's speaking of the temple. So what does it mean to stand then? Whatever it is, it's connected to the daily offering of the Jews in the temple. The daily offering would cease. The temple would be defiled in such a manner people would not be able to return there to worship. That's what makes it desolate. So I'm sure some of you are wondering how I can see homosexuality as being a possibility here for the answer. Like I said, it's a small possibility, but here's the way I think you could look at it, not the direct meaning of it. The temple of our body is a picture of the temple of God. Homosexuality is referred to as an abomination. Therefore, if you allow that detestable sin to come into your temple, God will leave you and you'll be desolate. That's how I can see the connection of an abomination of desolation with homosexuality. This would make the abomination of desolation possible to each and every person individually. But I believe that there's a danger of this being fulfilled in a spiritual sense, in that manner, a physical sense. But yet I believe there's a literal happening that's going to happen that will be the abomination of desolation. I believe it's speaking of the literal temple in Jerusalem, according to the original context and the ceasing of the daily offering. When the daily offering is taken away, something's going to stand in its place. And that is what is the abomination of desolation. However it happens, we know that some terrible sins have happened within the temple and it stopped all the sacrifices from being offered in the years gone by. But I believe there's something in the future that we're still waiting to see the final fulfillment of. Okay, brothers, this is getting good. Now we have a question sent in all the way from Tennessee. Question number three, would you explain what is meant by loving your neighbor as yourself? This is originally taken from out of Leviticus 19 and 18, and Jesus, Paul, and even James all reiterated that same point for us. You'll find it written in Matthew 5 and 43, Matthew 19 and 19, Matthew 22 and 39, Mark 12 and 31. Look in Romans chapter 13, verses 9 through 10, Galatians 5 and 14, and then again, you'll see it in the book of James 2 and 8. I believe that this is a simple and straightforward statement. I believe it's a simple and straightforward requirement. And I believe that we ought to take it as a simple and straightforward commandment. It's not just an option. It's not just given to us as something that we could do. We are told to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, how do we do this? How do we keep this commandment? How do we follow this? How do we perform this as a Christian? Let me ask you a couple questions. Do you desire to be hurt? Most likely you're going to answer no. I hope so. <laughs> I hope you answer no. Well, then don't hurt anyone. Do you do good things for yourself? then do good things to others and do good things for others. Do you like to be told off? Well, then don't tell anybody else off either. Do you enjoy being lied on? Then don't lie on anyone else. Do you like to go out and have a good meal? Then you might want to consider feeding the hungry. And whatever way you love yourself and whatever way you nurture yourself and whatever way you care for yourself, we're to do the same unto others. And then that's how we can fulfill this commandment. First of all, I believe this command strikes at one of man's real problems. Because if we can keep this commandment, then you will not murder. This concerns your neighbor's life. You will not commit adultery. This concerns our neighbor's chastity and purity. It takes the body of our neighbor to ourselves and gives our body to another. It also takes the body of our neighbor's spouse away from our neighbor and takes our own body away from our own spouse. 
If you love your neighbor as thyself, you will not steal. This concerns our neighbor's property. You will not lie on your neighbor. That's a false witness. This concerns your neighbor's name, his reputation. You will tell the truth about your neighbor. Also, you will honor your closest neighbors, those that you have, your own family. As the Bible says, we're to honor our parents. I believe Jesus gives us the meaning of this one commandment in summing up those five commandments. Also, James called it in James chapter number two and verse number eight, the royal law. This loving thy neighbor as thyself means loving and treating others the way that you would want to be treated and loved. It means in your actions and from your heart, love everyone, love your neighbor, love a young person like you would want to be loved if you were a young person, love an older person like you would like to be loved. The same to the waiter or the waitress, the cashier, the car salesman, the mailman, your fellow employee, your employer, and for sure, your pastor and his family. Love them as you love yourself. Okay, brothers. Our next question was sent in from another faithful listener right here in Oklahoma. Question number four. What things is Paul referring to in this scripture? 1 Corinthians 10 and 23. I've heard it used as an excuse to partake in sinful activities by worldly preachers. So what things is Paul referring to? 1 Corinthians 10 and 23, I'll read that verse. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. So are lawful acts always permissible? We should go back and remember the subject of this passage of scriptures. It is the limits of Christian freedom. So there are restrictions within our freedom. The point is clear to me. The Holy Ghost declares through this passage of scripture that when a person participates in a function or fashion that is sinful, sensual, or worldly, that person becomes identified with that. Is the thing or act expedient? Is it edifying? It may be lawful, may be legitimate, and even allowed. But is it expedient? Expedient means beneficial. Is it helpful? Is it useful in the kingdom of God? Is it edifying? Does it build up? Is it constructing or tearing down? Is it mature? Is it spiritually mature? So I guess the question is, does it glorify our Lord? Does it promote the kingdom of God or ourself? This verse is in no way an excuse to partake in sinful activities. It is quite the opposite. We must always take the whole of God's word. Paul tells us much concerning continuing in sin. Should we continue in sin? Shall we continue in sin? He says two words, God forbid. Okay, I want to begin answering this question by saying Paul has never encouraged anyone to sin. Paul never encouraged anyone to commit sin. And he definitely wouldn't encourage anyone to continue in sin. As a matter of fact, Paul spent most of his epistles warning against the danger of sin. So it'd be foolish to throw away all of that just to take a couple of phrases to the extreme. And that's what I feel like people do when they take this verse and they begin to tweak it and twist it and just turn it to wherever. I believe they're resting it and it can be to their own destruction. Once again, let me read this. I know Brother Paul read it, but I want to read it just so it's in your mind fresh. All things are lawful for me. 
but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. So there must be some kind of explanation for this, right? There's got to be some kind of understanding that Paul had in his mind when he said this. There had to be some kind of understanding the Corinthians had when it was said to them. Most scholars feel that this was likely a phrase or a slogan that the Corinthians used, and it began to be an excuse to commit sexual immorality. Paul is actually talking in a negative sense here in 1 Corinthians 10 and 23. He's not saying this in the sense that, hey, let's just all go out and have a good time and everything is just good to do. It doesn't matter what you do. He's saying it's not beneficial for people to elevate their desires above God's desires. Everything is permissible is what some people say when they read this. Even some of your Bibles interpret it that way. Everything is permissible. When he says all things are lawful for me, they say it means everything's permissible. Everything? Everything? As we just answered the question, love thy neighbor as thyself, so is everything permissible? Is your wife permissible for me to have? Am I permitted to come to your house and steal or take whatever I want? Everything's permissible, remember? No, it breaks down when we get it to that point, and everyone knows it can't mean that. But yet, if you desire to go out and do something, you can use that phrase, well, everything's permissible. Should I get drunk? Well, everything's permissible. Should I do a little drug? Well, everything's permissible. I want you to think about this. This is a statement that Paul is repeating that he already made in 1 Corinthians 6 and 12. Listen to this. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now, what in the world is he saying here? As before, Paul repeats it, but this time he follows the repetition with not everything is constructive. That's what that word means, constructive. Not all things build up. If it doesn't build up, it may be tearing down. Christian liberty, yes, I hear that a lot, and it's very important. There are liberties that God has given us as being Christians wherever the Spirit of the Lord is. There is liberty. But that doesn't mean that all things are wise to do, and it doesn't mean all things are permitted to be done. They neither build up the believer in faith, and it doesn't help anyone else either. If you took that to the extremes and said, well, everything's permissible for me, then, as I said a while ago, I can take your belongings. Now, that doesn't help you, and it's not helping me. It's made me a thief, and it's cost you something. When I take from you, it cost you. So it's not helping me, nor is it helping you. It's more important to avoid such actions than to assert one's rights. This means that even though you might be able to do some things and remain a Christian, it doesn't mean that it's always the right thing to do. I told a young man years ago who was sitting there right before church and he was playing either the boogie woogie or some kind of blues stuff on the guitar. I told him, I said, just because you can do that doesn't mean you ought to. And I think that sums it up fairly well. In reality, I think we need to all go back to 1 Corinthians 6 and 19 and apply that here as well. Listen to this. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and get this phrase, and ye are not your own. Verse 20 says, for ye are bought with a price. So what does that mean? We're to glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which is God's. We've been given our body to bring God glory, not to do what we want to do. We're to seek his pleasure more than anything in life. This next question was sent in by a listener who has submitted several questions to this podcast. This one has sure got our attention. Question number five. I've heard that it's okay for Christians to have tattoos because Jesus had one in the book of Revelation. Is this true? Okay, number one, I want to ask back, what tattoo parlor would Jesus visit? 
some of the most ungodly things that can be done are done in a tattoo parlor. So where would Jesus have gotten his tattoo at? Okay, I'm being facetious, so let's move on. The scripture people who tout this claim uses is found in Revelation 19 and 16. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They say that if it's written on his thigh, it must be some form of a tattoo. To me, the answer to this is very simple. On his vesture, well, that's his clothing. On his vesture and on his thigh is where his name is written. It's on his clothing. This is not to be taken in the literal sense at all. Jesus would never transgress the command that his father gave to the people to follow in Leviticus 19 and 28, and he never will transgress the commands of his father at any point in time. No, it's not true. That's my short answer. I'll go ahead, Brother Donnie, and read this verse in Leviticus 19 and 28. Ye shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. This is not me and you making this command. It's the Lord making this. These cuttings and marks upon their flesh came from heathen practices in their mourning for the dead. So doing this indicates rebellion against God. As you read in Revelation chapter 19, verse number 16, it's upon his vesture. Matter of fact, if you go back to Revelation chapter number 1 and verse number 13, Jesus is clothed with a garment down to the foot. This is not a tattoo upon his thigh. John is seeing the writing that is at the thigh on his vesture. This next one is something I've wondered about many times myself. Question number six. Is it wrong to have a loved one cremated when they pass away? I've thought about this a lot through the years, and I know that there are different thoughts concerning cremation of the body. In Joshua, speaking of Achan and his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his asses, his sheep, and all that he had were stoned and burned with fire. The burning of a body is part of the process of cremation. Also, in 1 Samuel 31, starting at verse number 11, down through verse number 13, it tells us that the bodies of Saul and his sons were burned, and then their bones were buried. Some may do this for heathen and religious practices, but according to Ecclesiastes chapter number 12, and verse number 7, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was. And the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So obviously, any dead and buried body will decompose back to the dust. Now, I prefer not to be cremated. But to say that it is wrong, I cannot do that either. For one day, we will as Christians receive a new body. According to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, also Job chapter 19 and verse number 26 says, Though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Cremation was the customary practice of the ancient Greeks and somewhat among the Romans, but it was never the usual mode of disposing of the dead by the Hebrews. As a matter of fact, most people in the Middle East buried their dead and they never burned them, but in a few certain cases. We know that the Egyptians invented the action of embalming and they never cremated the remains of their people. Tacitus noted that the Jews buried their dead rather than burn them in his book, History, Section 5. Some rabbis considered the burning of the corpse consistent only with idolatry. They felt like it had to be something idolatrous for it to be done. 
Many rabbis concluded that burial is positively commanded in the Pentateuch. Let me read you that verse, Deuteronomy 21 and 23. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. God says, take him down off of the tree and bury him. They feel like that's a command. The phrase in Joshua 7 and 15, which says they shall be burnt with fire, that's very telling of how it should be viewed, I believe. One point here is concerning Achan is that he was stoned to death and then he was burned. He had to die first before he was burned. Some people say that the only sin of a burning body was that if the body was still alive. They killed him first and then they burned his body. What Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 and 3 has been taken out of context by many people. He said, if I give my body to be burned, Paul was simply speaking of the customs of Corinth, which was a Gentile city. There's no instance of cremation in the New Testament, whether Jewish, heathen, or Christian. It's just not really mentioned. The early church followed the Jewish practice of burying the dead. Historically, cremation has never been very popular among Christian people. This is probably due to the influence of the Jewish community. Secondly, it's due to the fact that Christ was buried and then he resurrected bodily. If he had been cremated, it would have made the whole resurrected body thing very odd. The Jews believe that God intended for the soul and the body to be able to come back together in the resurrection of the body. If the body was burned, they couldn't figure how ashes could turn back into a body. You could argue the same point with dust as well, but that's their belief of how they looked at things. Thirdly, many of the Christians who were martyred died at the stake being burnt alive. Most likely, this kept many generations away from the act of cremation just because of the similarity between the two things. Fourthly, Early Christians strongly believed the body to be the temple of the Holy Ghost, and they would be judged by God for destroying the temple. This is the temple God gave us, was our bodies. And if we destroy this temple, the Bible says God will destroy us. While there's nothing really anti-Christian in cremation, most scholars believe that it will never become the prevailing practice of Christians as a whole. Okay, brothers, as always, we end these Q&As with a question from a child. And this question comes from a child in Kentucky. Boy, what a great state right there. All right, question number seven. Did the serpent have legs before the curses were handed out? What was the serpent? Was he really a snake? I'll have to say that those are some very interesting questions for a child, considering scholars have studied and debated this topic for years. <laughs> so some intriguing facts about this serpent, and I say that with quotation marks around it. In Genesis 3, he can speak. And then in Genesis 3 and 14, what God said to the serpent kind of implies that he had legs. Let me read you that verse right here. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. And upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. The Lord told him that through his curse, he would now go forth on his belly, which seems a little odd, especially if he had been doing that before. So obviously that wasn't his normal way of getting around that he had done before. Now there's a lot of debate on whether the serpent in Genesis 3 was Satan or not. There's a few possibilities to think over. A lot of people have promoted these three ideas, and I'm going to share them with you. Satan appeared as a serpent. Satan literally came in and possessed a serpent. Or Satan deceived Adam and Eve into believing that it was the serpent who was talking to them, and it was him that was talking to them. All right, so number one, let's, let's put down something right here. Serpents and snakes do not possess the ability to speak. 
In Revelation 12 and 9 and in Revelation 20 and 2, Satan is described as the serpent. Now, the Bible doesn't really say whether or not the serpent stood up and walked before the curse. We know that most other reptiles do walk on legs, but snakes do not. Taking that into consideration, it gives us an idea of how we need to look at Genesis 3 and 14. The fact that the serpent was cursed to crawl on his belly and eat of the dust of the earth indicates that the serpent would be despised and looked upon as vile and despicable. I personally believe that the serpent was a spirit being and not your normal snake. Wonderful answer, Brother Donnie, and I don't know that I can add anything to that. But the question was, did the serpent have legs before the curses were handed out? What was the serpent? Was he really a snake? To me, this is an interesting question, and I'm not sure that I can give a definite yes or no answer to this. But as you read, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14 says, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this... Thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Although we do know that snakes crawl on their belly, we must ask ourselves this question. Was this a talking snake or a serpentine being that very much resembled a snake? So to answer the question of the day, we know that this serpent moved in an upright manner before the fall, or at least it seems that way by the way that God speaks to the serpent. I know there are reptiles that do have legs, but snakes do not. And in my studies of the serpent found in Genesis chapter number three, this serpent was not a snake, but instead a serpentine being, Satan himself. As a matter of fact, I want to throw something in at the end of this. If anyone wants to look further into this, go to Isaiah chapter 6 and read about the seraphim that was crying out, holy, holy, holy. When you look at that, a seraph, all right, that's what they were. If you say it as a singular, it's one, it's seraph. If there's more than one, it's seraphim. That's the plural of seraph. Seraph is a serpentine being. If you look deep enough into it, it appears that Satan was probably a seraph from heaven before he was cast down to the earth. There's a lot of things you can look into when you get to studying that, but there are serpentine beings, spirit beings. And I believe, like Brother Paul said, that's what we're talking about here in the garden. Not your ordinary snake. This wasn't a rattlesnake. This wasn't a viper. This wasn't a python. This was a being, and that's why he could talk. And that's why he was cursed to go into the dust because the Bible said that the seed of the woman, which didn't say the seed of Adam, the seed of the woman, not really Eve. He's talking about Mary. The seed of the woman shall bruise his head. How's that going to happen? He's going to be licking the dust of the earth with the foot of our Savior standing upon the serpent's head, which is Satan himself. All right. We would like to certainly thank our listeners for these good questions that were sent in. We'd like to thank these brothers for great answers. Certainly want to thank Brother Paul Snow for being with us today. It was an honor. I greatly enjoyed it. All right. And remember, friends, if you have a Bible question or a question regarding how news or current events or things going on in our culture are connected to Scripture, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and come back Monday, June the 19th for episode number 121, The Light Created It, John 1 and 2 through 5. But for me, this I know.
Really changed my heart all around Put my feet back on the ground Got along Now for heaven I want to go I want to go I want to go To that land where the milk and honey flow Oh, I've heard of such a place I can't go there by God's grace Never seen it, but I know I want to go